So today is part five of a six-part series of the Paramitas. The last four weeks I talked about generosity, discipline, patience, and enthusiasm. And today is concentration or meditation, depending on the translation. And I'll begin by saying we live in a time that makes anything around attention challenging. We live in a time in which there are two multi-billion dollar industries, the entertainment industry and the advertising industry, that essentially commodify our, our attention, want to buy up our attention, and are doing everything possible to get our attention. And of course, this... Uh, these wonderful phones that we have also are very good at getting our attention. Every every app we load, you know, saying, you know, can I give you notifications? You know, essentially, can I disrupt you even further? You know, this kind of thing. Um, and of course, societies like this because basically American consumers want it this way. Um, it's very funny the. The capitalist system is relatively good at giving people what they want. And the naive assumption of America and of capitalism is if you give people what they want, they'll be happy. You know, um, whereas Buddhism makes it really relatively clear, Buddhism and the other wisdom traditions, that if I'm living a life based on what I want, that is to say if I'm living a life based on satisfying just my own desires and nothing else, that that's actually going to lead to dissatisfaction and, and meaningless and lack of fulfillment, this sort of thing, you know. I take it as a, a foundational insight of the historical Buddha that he saw there was this profound link between attention and happiness, you know. And in, in some sense, you know, Buddhism says, you know, rather than follow what you like, learn to pay attention, which probably would sound like a nonsensical answer to most conventional Americans. And so I'll say Buddhism encourages us to cultivate what I'd call a high quality of attention. And I, I've talked about this before. Um, and And first I'll say that just the nature of the time we live in, the, the very notion of a high quality of attention is itself kind of paradoxical. Um, I would say in terms of attention, we live in almost famine conditions. And if you, you consider, for example, the analogy to food, when people are in famine conditions, no one cares about the quality of the food. The only relevant question is, is there food or not? You know, and it's only when we live in conditions of relative plenty that we can start to be fussy about the quality. You know, I want this brand, not that brand, you know, or, you know, someone can be a connoisseur of, of food. We really live in a time of such scarcity of attention that the only the only relevant question for most people is, is someone paying attention or not? Just that very simple binary. Is there attention or not? You know? Um, 
and very few people give thought to the idea of quality of attention or what it might be to be a connoisseur of different types of attention. High quality attention, I would say, first of all, involves inner silence. And when we quiet the monkey mind, that often has the effect of calming the emotions as well. Um, it really involves dropping into the vulnerability, being a full body awareness. Um, it's ha having this ability with the attention both to focus in and concentrate on something, but also have kind of a more diffuse awareness of, of environment. Um, it's ultimately really sensing the whole world with one's whole body. You know, walking, say, walking outside in the moment, in that moment of stepping into the fresh air, tasting that moment with one's whole body. That would be very high-quality attention. And I'll say also, it's... Um, for people who are not very disciplined about working on their attention, I think they often encounter the world as kind of a fixed thing, you know, same old, same old. Um, the more I've worked with my attention, the more that I'm aware of this profound dynamism between how much I'm showing up and how engaging the world appears to me, you know. And, and certainly I have days when I'm wrapped up in my own stuff, you know, self-pity and whatever. And I realize, you know, looking at a day like that, I'm walking around in kind of a, a gray, dull, unattractive world, you know. Whereas when my attention is very clear and sharp, the world engages me much more powerfully. It, it's much, it seems much more colorful even. Um, and there's times that I've been deeply present and there's there's almost a sparkle to the world a magical quality there there's one memory that i want to share with you this is this is something that happened years ago maybe 15 or 20 years ago as some of you know i was a member of this group called cough for a while a spiritual group called cough i was in this group for 20 years and so at one point, I was on a cough meditation. This was in Southern California. We were on a retreat ground. And it's kind of the nature of a, of a cough retreat that um, after lunch, we'd have this short um, kind of informal time where we could just go outside and chat for 15 or 20 minutes before the retreat continued. Unbeknownst to us, the leader of cough the, this, the very, very wise man who was the leader of Kaf was also staying on that retreat ground. And he surprised us one day, we were finishing up lunch, and all of a sudden he walks in, and we were all delighted. And so we had 15 or 20 minutes just to, to sit and chat with this man. And he was, it's really the only time that I met him in person, very, very humble, just this huge heart quality to him. And in, in a very quiet, soft-spoken way, he said some profoundly wise things during that time. But one of the things that was more striking than anything that he said 
I was sitting there listening, and of course he was, you know, there were the other retreatants in the retreat house. There were trees, and, you know, it was a, a nice natural setting. I was listening, and at some point, all of a sudden, there was a shift, and it's like the whole world got marginally more colorful. And and those of you who are my age or older, you might remember that televisions, you know, old wonky 70 televisions had this thing called a color knob. And maybe if the show came in and it wasn't quite the right color, you'd you'd fiddle with the color knob to try and get the color right. It was almost as if that moment someone had adjusted my color knob. And the world became, like, instantaneously, there was a jump in suddenly how how bright it was and how vivid the colors were. And it, it really, you know, reflecting on that, it really made me appreciate in a vis- visceral way how much there's a dynamism between the quality of my attention and how the world looks, you know. One way that to think about quality of attention is what does it mean to be a good listener, you know. A good listener certainly... If I'm listening to someone, certainly part of that is um, as much as possible silencing myself, listening from a from a calm, quiet place. Um, listening, of course, has a tremendous heart quality, uh, not only a caring, um, but but really almost sending out an energetic vibe of however you're showing up in this moment is perfectly fine, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, there's a tremendous generosity in in good listening. You know, I want to see the best in you. I want to, you know, reflect your strengths and your wisdom back to you and, you know, and allow yourself to see your own strengths, like that kind of thing. All that is part of good listening. And so there's, you know, certainly the, the very caring act of listening to another person but there's also a way that we, as it were, listen to or take in the world, listen to a tree, listen to a cloud, listen to, you know, what does the thing itself have to say about itself, you know? And I want to read you this, this quote. It's a line from a, a poem from David White. It's a poem called, just a selection, it's called A Statue of the Buddha. And so he's talking about the Buddha. And he says, you came so far and all alone, faithful to all things as you met them, until finally everything bowed to you and everything spoke to you in its own voice. And I love that image of paying such careful attention, being faithful to each thing we see. You know, what what does that mean to be faithful to each thing we're witnessing, you know? And to be so attentive that we could hear it speaking in its own voice, you know, hear you know, hear it for the absolute suchness that it has. So this this paramita, concentration or meditation, the Sanskrit word is dhyana. And this is a, a funny word and a word that has kind of a funny history. It was um, it appears in the in the yogic system. It appears in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Um, anything that calls itself yoga 
derives originally from Patanjali. And Patanjali had, um, he called them literally the eight limbs or the eight stages of yoga. And stage seven was dhyana, meditation, which was to prepare you for stage eight, the final stage, which is samadhi. Samadhi was, was seen as this kind of inner absorption into the rapture of God consciousness within. So it's, it's kind of a, 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 a way to conceptualize the, an end spiritual state comparable to, to Buddhist enlightenment. Um, all that Americans really know about yoga is, is the third of those stages, the asanas, which are to prepare you for the breath work and then the meditation and so forth. So dhyana was the word for meditation in the, in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions. Um, Buddhism first spread south and it became the tradition known as Theravada Buddhism. And then it started to spread onto the Tibetan plateau and cross into the north, ultimately becoming what is known as Mahayana Buddhism. Um, it took a lot of time for Buddhism to, to penetrate into China, um, but it really took root and flowered during the, the Tang Dynasty. Um, 600 to 900 AD was the Tang Dynasty. And the, the Sanskrit word dhyana for meditation became translated into the, the Chinese word Chan for meditation. Now, there was one radical school that developed in China under the, largely under the influence of Taoism, and they said, essentially, we're going to chuck the sutras. We don't care about the sutras and the, the spiritual writings. Buddha didn't have them. We don't need them. We're just going to meditate all the time. And so they, were, they called them the meditation school, Chan Buddhism. Um... Later on, when Buddhism started to be persecuted in China in the Sung Dynasty, the schools of Buddhism started to migrate to Japan, and the word Chan in Japan got translated into the Japanese Zen. So the Chan school became the Zen school, or Zen Buddhism, which continues to this day. And so there's kind of this strange, like, international multi-century game of telephone that Dhyana... Sanskrit dhyana became Chinese Chan, became Japanese Zen, you know. And so the question, what is dhyana, it, it's not unreasonable to rephrase it as, what is Zen? And of course, this is a very famous question in the Zen koans and Zen stories, uh, usually, usually presented in a very non-logical, you know, in a way that is unsatisfying to the strategic logical mind, you know. One story, the, 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 the monk says, what is Zen? The master says, the cooling fan gives enough of a breeze. Another story, what is Zen? The master says, oak tree in the garden. You know, another story, the, the, the disciple says, what is Zen? The master says, I simply do not understand. You know? And so in a way, how can I say, it can sound odd to our American ears when I say that this, this paramita, we can translate it either as concentration or meditation, because it sounds like, well, meditation is something we do at a very particular time in a particular place, and concentration is something we do in general in life. Um, it's really pointing much more to what we might call a Zen mind state 
or a, a Zen kind of experience, that intensity of engaging in the world, that, that, you know, embracing the particularity of the present moment with glorious enthusiasm, you know, this kind of thing. And of course, the, the, the first four paramitas do a lot to support this. I mean, having generosity with ourselves, practicing discipline, having patience, having enthusiasm are all important. And so I've talked about all these high states, you know, inner silence and all this sort of stuff. How do we get there? This is the how do we get there part of the talk. Um, and it's kind of the, the unfun answer that Buddhism gives us. How do we get there? By committing to a daily practice. You know. And that daily practice could be meditation, it could also be yoga, tai chi, qigong, you know, you know, some people can't sit still, they, they need to move, but, you know, as long as you're doing silence and grounding yourself in the body, you know, that, does, that distinction doesn't matter too much. Um, but commitment is important. And in order to frame this, I often like making an analogy to romantic commitment. Think about romantic relationships for a minute. Think about the upper level of the upper level possibilities of fulfillment and connection in a committed romantic relationship, and compare that to the upper levels of of fulfillment that you could have in a completely casual romantic relationship. You know, often with a casual relationship, we use the word fun for that. You know. And, you know, and frankly, I don't think there's any problem if at certain particular periods of life we're pursuing some fun, as long as we understand that the deeper fulfillment would only come from a committed relationship, you know. Like if someone says, one of my goals in life is romantic fulfillment, and I I want a committed long-term relationship, well, that would make sense. It seems like those things go together. But if someone said, I want romantic fulfillment, but I'm not interested in commitment, I just want to have fun, like, we'd wonder, like, how does that fit together? Like, that, it seems like a contradiction, you know? And, of course, romantic relationships are not the, the best analogy because even if I'm committed, maybe the other person isn't committed or I'm doing spiritual work and the other person isn't, and then we grow apart, you know, there's, there's, there's always something, you know, it always depends on the other person as well as me. Um... But with ourselves, commitment to ourself, that, that has much, that reaps a much more powerful reward because it doesn't depend on everyone else. It just depends on me. And so the question is, do you want to have a, a committed relation to yourself or do you want to have a casual relationship with yourself? You know? And, and I'll, I'll say that knowing commitment is hard, you know? As we talked about last week, <coughs> if I'm pursuing commitment, you know, insofar as I commit myself, whether it's a, in a spiritual practice or in a romantic relationship, I'm more or less putting myself on a collision course with whatever my deepest fears are, whatever my most powerful triggers, like one way or another, those are going to come up and I'm going to have to face them, you know. And so, and that we know that's part of commitment, you know and to embrace that enthusiastically. 
you know. But I'll say, so much of human life is about attention. Attention is so important. You know, any conversation, any event, any any happening where you were distracted, you never get that back. You know, maybe you can have another conversation with that person, but that particular conversation, you never get that moment in time back. There are so many people in this conventional culture who at the end of their life are looking back with astonishing regret. And they're essentially saying, where did it go? Where did my life go? You know, it all went by so fast. And essentially what they're saying is, my life happened when I wasn't there. You know, and the question for all of us is, do you want to be there when your life is happening? You know, and when we commit to ourselves, we put ourselves on a, a path to commit to to being more in touch, to have a higher quality of attention, a higher quality of love, a higher possibility of fulfillment, really the only possibility of un, of of cultivating our deeper potential comes with committing to ourselves. When we're not committing to ourselves, we're essentially walking away from all of that. It's like money we're leaving on the table and walking away, you know. And so commitment to ourself is so important. So I'll say right now, everyone just breathe. I, I do want a presence that wherever we are in our, in our path, however screwed up we are, we're all completely lovable as we are in the present moment, you know. And really to hold that, hold that tremendous self-compassion along with, you know, the whatever urgency we feel around the teachings. I think I'll also say that, um, you know, my own life, every day what I'm experiencing is that my body is slowly, slowly but surely decaying because of ALS. And I, and I, I, I think over time what this has really done is kind of accentuated my understanding of the urgency of the Buddha Dharma. So I think you, you got a little of that tonight, you know. But having said that, I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the, the Zoomies. Good hybrid etiquette. So at the top, I have the, the quote from the poem of David White. I printed it as prose so it would fit on the, the quote sheet, but it is really a poem. From Carlfield Graf Durkheim. The first necessity is that we should have the courage to face life and encounter all that is most perilous in the world. When this is possible, meditation itself becomes the means 
by which we accept and welcome the demons that arise from the unconscious, a process very different from the practice of concentrating on some object as protection against such forces. Only if we venture repeatedly through zones of annihilation can our contact with what is divine, what is beyond annihilation, become firm and stable. very practical one from Anais Nim. From the backstabbing co-worker to the meddling sister-in-law, you are in charge of how you react to the people and events in your life. You can give either negative negativity power over your life, or you can choose happiness instead. Take control to choose and focus on what is important in your life. Those who cannot live fully often become destroyers of life. Ayakema said, As long as we have practiced neither concentration nor mindfulness, ego takes itself for granted and remains its usual normal size, about as as big as the people around one will allow. Thich Nhat Hanh said, Wash every bowl, every dish, as if you were bathing the baby Buddha, breathing in, feeling joy, breathing out, smiling. Every minute can be a holy, sacred minute. Where do you seek the spiritual? You seek the spiritual in every ordinary thing you do every day. Sweeping the floor, watering the vegetables, washing the dishes becomes holy and sacred if mindfulness is there. With mindfulness and concentration, everything becomes spiritual. Zig Ziglar said, lack of direction, not lack of time, is the problem. We all have 24 hours a day. And I will say, it's something I've, I think I've shared before, Peop- I often hear people my age saying, time goes so fast, where is it going? For me, time goes slow. And it, 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 in fact, it's gone, it has slowed down over the years. Um, you know, I remember yesterday, but like thinking about yesterday to today, it's like looking across several football fields, you know, because so much time, you know, so much, there's been so much fullness of time between yesterday and today. The Jungian Marion Woodman, and I, God, I highly recommend everything that Marion Woodman has written. Remarkable woman. Body work must be approached with the same respect and attentiveness that one gives to dreams. The body has a wisdom of its own. However, slowly and securitously that wisdom manifests, once it is experienced, it is a foundation a basis of knowing that gives confidence and total support to the ego. To reach its wisdom requires absolute concentration, dropping the mind into the body, breathing into what is ever ready to be released, and allowing the process of expression until the negative damned energy is out, making room for the positive energy, genuine light to flood in. Rabbi Kushner, who we lost this year, said, If you concentrate on finding what is good in every situation, you will discover that your life will suddenly be filled with gratitude, a feeling that nurtures the soul. Joseph Goldstein said, Without the steadiness of concentration, it is easy to get get caught up in the feelings, perceptions, and thoughts as they arrive. We take them to be the self, and we get carried away by trains of association and reactivity. Bruce Lee said quite simply, the successful warrior is the average man 
with laser-like focus. Sagyal Rinpoche said, Sit for a short time, then take a break, a very short break of about 30 seconds or a minute, but be mindful of whatever you do and do not lose your presence or natural ease. Then alert yourself and sit again. If you do many short sessions like this, your breaks will make your meditation more real and more inspiring. They will take the clumsy, irksome rigidity, solemnity, and unnaturalness out of your practice and bring you more and more focus and ease. David Nickturn said, Mindfulness practice is non-sectarian. There's no belief system attached to it. There are no articles of faith. You just learn to pay attention. I didn't learn that in school, did you? Think of it as a kind of gym class for the mind, developing basic strength, focus, and stability. Sharon Salzberg said, The secret to deepening concentration is the ability to let go over and over again. No judgment no harsh condemnation, no feeling of failing. Let the distractions, let go, letting go of the distractions gently over and over and returning to the chosen object of, of attention. This is how we make progress. And I often say that that quote reminds me my first several months of meditating. I had, you know, kind of a, a week or so that was kind of a honeymoon experience. But after that, it was like six or eight months of what just felt like a daily tug of war, you know, like, why are you doing this? Back to the breath. You're wasting your time. Back to the breath. You could be getting more sleep. Back to the breath. You know, blah, 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 blah. you know, just that tug of war. But I realized now, essentially, I was building a muscle. And at a certain point, that muscle got strong enough that I could hold silence for a while. You know, we all live in a world in which that muscle has atrophied. And, and we have to work. It's like a gym class to build that muscle up. Roy Bennett said, what you stay focused on grows. Oh, I skipped Tara Brock. Tara Brock says, calling your natural curiosity as you focus inward. Try to let go of any preconceived ideas and instead listen in in a kind, receptive way to your body and to your heart. Yangi Mingyor said, all you have to do is rest your mind in its natural openness. No special focus, no special effort is required. And if for some reason you cannot rest your mind, you can simply observe whatever thoughts, feelings, or cessation come up, hang out for a couple seconds, and then dissolve and acknowledge, oh, that's what's going on in my mind right now. Jack O'Keefe said, at the outset of self-inquiry, it is necessary to make an effort to abide in the self. This results in a natural abiding in time. The unnatural state of outward-focused mind must be brought around to being inward-focused, and this alone is where the effort lies. Mind thinks it has something to do in order to realize its true nature. It, has, it only has to be quiet, not engage with thoughts, and then it must be bypassed. Greg Anderson says, Only one thing has to change for us to know happiness in our lives, where we focus our attention. Race Mamenikin says, quite simply, growing up takes focus, energy, resilience, patience, and tolerance for uncertainty. Stephen Richards says, when you connect to the silence within you, that is when you can make sense of the disturbance going on around you. And Mark and Angel Chernoff say, you become the true master of life when you learn how to master your focus. 
where your attention goes. You value what you give your energy to.